Hi, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I rep kids' books from picture books through YA. You might have noticed in past podcasts that despite the fact that there's 11 agents in my agency, none of my agency colleagues have ever joined me before. That is because they are all scaredy cats. But today, finally, one of them was brave enough to record with me. Kelly Sonek is also a senior agent at Andrea Brown. She's based in San Diego, and she also, like me, represents everything from picture books through YA. Some of her clients include authors like David Elliott, who has been a guest on this podcast before, Courtney Stevens, and illustrators like Joy Ang and Kim Smith, to name just a few. And we have so much to talk about together and a bunch of listener questions to answer. So I'm going to get right to it. Let me get Kelly on the line. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Jen. So uh, you've been at Andrea Brown for almost as long as I have, since 2009, and you were at another agency before that, so it's fair to say you've been around the children's book block. Uh, I also know you rep everything from picture books through YA, so let's get the question that people actually want the answer to out of the way right now. What are you looking for in your query inbox? Oh, this is such a hard question to answer, as I'm sure you know. Um, I feel like the things that I say today aren't necessarily the things that I'm, you know, on the hunt for in a few months necessarily. But um, a few things that are currently on my list, uh, I can go through a few things that are sort of more long term on my list, and then a few things that are specifically on my list now. I am a huge graphic lover, graphic novel lover of both fiction and nonfiction. I um, have been really excited about the growth of this format and have been representing it since the beginning of my career. My sweet spot is preteen and younger, but I'm open to older um, graphic novels as well, although I'm not into issue-driven or high fantasy or anything scary um, for the older readers. I'm really interested in finding some actual magical realism, like not, I think that word is, that term is used incorrectly a lot of the time. And I, in fact, used it incorrectly at the beginning of my career. Um, But I'm talking about like when the moon was ours or, you know, anything that feels like Gabriela Garcia Marquez. So actual legitimate magical realism. Um, Within YA, I tend towards dark and lyrical, um, sort of cerebral, I think, a lot of the time. That is not at all including gory or horror things or anything scary. I'm sort of a wuss when it comes to scary stories. But I do like haunting or twisted, um, and that's what I mean by dark. Uh, That can be fantasy, magical, paranormal, I like science fiction, but anything with like a hoverboard on the first page is not (laughs) not for me. Um, And then sort of specifically, um, right now, I'm also very interested in seeing books that explore non-binary experiences for both older readers, but also very specifically interested in things exploring this within picture books Things like Julian is a Mermaid um, that feature gender expansive characters are particularly interesting to me right now. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit of what's on my list. That's good. So now that that is out of the way, we can get into the meat of the discussion. So there have been some recent, shall we say, scandals. I know. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds about specifics here because there's a lot of allegations and I don't want to get sued by anyone. But basically, as many listeners will know, a couple of agents in, in the world have recently been exposed as agents. They were not doing their job properly. Their clients have paid the price. In some cases, they're scrambling to find new representation. In other cases, these writers are still like licking their wounds, trying to figure out what to do next. Because it's a tremendous breach of trust that happened, and it's totally understandable that people might feel somewhat freaked out. So I don't really want to linger on the negative, but I would like to talk about best practices. Yes. How should we get started with that? (laughs) It's a horrible... Well, one of the problems... Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is the agents looked great on paper. So like all those things that we talk about all the time, those red flags, like charging money or that kind of thing, 
as far as anyone knew, these were reputable agents and they certainly had great clients, but people still got duped at the end of the day. So like, what is an agent supposed to do? How can you tell if your agent is doing their job? I think this is such an important question and it's something that I feel really strongly about getting. I'd like, I'd love to see more conversations being started in the larger world about this because I, I feel that perhaps what led to some of these situations is that there isn't a, a, a widely discussed set of standards for how agents should be acting and what is your job and what is on the other hand, a stylistic difference. You know, you and I work differently and within the agency, we all have our different styles, but we are all at our agency, you know, doing our jobs responsibly. So I think that these events have really rattled us. It's been, you know, simultaneously startling and enraging to hear about what these creators have been going through. And it's been eye-opening to realize how many different ways agents work. So I think it's hard to come up with, you know, standards, but I, um, in, a, in preparation for this conversation, um, and because this is something I've been talking about a little bit on social media and wanting to help creators understand how they can sort of evaluate their relationships and, and also go into new relationships with fair expectations for what an agent should be doing. I came up with a little list of you know, kind of minimum or basic requirements for how an agent and creator should be working together. Um, And I think, I mean, ultimately, but as you say, like these are sort of guidelines that the way an agent does this stuff might be different, but the basic like bones of it should look like this. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, like timelines might be different or the way that the, the information is relayed might be different. You know, it might be phone calls. It might be emails. It might be text messages. It might be a combination of all three. Um, but these are, these are kind of like, I think, I think this is a skeleton of where we can start the conversation at least. So number one, I think the creator should be given at some point, the list of people their work is being shared with. I tend to, believe that, you know, my style is to give this at the beginning, but it's possible that a creator might work with an agent who gives that list at the end. But I think that that list should be shared ultimately with the creator. And it's also, I think the creator's decision to enter into a relationship with an agent whose style fits there. So I also sort of um, predicate this discussion with that is that a creator should be looking for somebody whose style matches the, the needs they have. Um, Number two, the creator should be told when the agent plans to go on submission in advance of the submission and then receive confirmation once it is on submission. Number three, the agent should follow up with editors and be able to solicit answers from editors on the project. I feel that if a creator is told that, let's say, five editors were queried with the project, um, if the agent is only able to get one response and considers the other four a pass, like assumes a pass, that is the agent not being able to deliver on their side of the, like they're not doing their job. They're not being able to deliver the. Well, but answer. whoa, because there's like such a thing as black hole. Editors. Totally. I mean, obviously but I would never expect of, four yes, out of five would be exactly. crazy, but like, but I don't know. I mean, I've definitely had some people who'd never respond or respond months later, like, Oh, oops. Right. Like, no, I, really. uh, we are, Even when all, I've been hounding them, so. yes, yes. We are all in that. Well, we're not all, I mean, that happens and there are editors who are black holes, but I think that an agent should know enough about the landscape of, you know, the editors who are black holes and shouldn't be submitting to them after they are, um, not giving responses and they should be not, uh, creating a sublist that has a, a, you know, a lot of editors on it who don't respond. Um, I mean, would you say that that's sort of fair? I mean, ideally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly have had projects where it's very difficult to get an answer out of people. Right. Um, but you know, of course I want my clients to know that if they, ask me, I will happily give them the updates that I have and nudge all the people that I haven't heard from and, and stuff like that. I mean, I think the most important thing with it is that the 
author isn't totally in the dark. Like if they ask me a question, I should answer it. And, um, and you know, just know that they're not forgotten and that there's communication. Um, because also sometimes things just take a really long time. Yes. Yes. You know? Yes. I mean, I've had projects that, and you, we both have had projects where you get an offer sometimes a year later, um, which is not, you know, what anyone wants, but is what sometimes happens. And I, I guess maybe number three should be amended then to, to say that like the majority of the sublist, the agent should be able to get answers from. I think that, you know, four out of five should not be assumed passes. And I have heard from creators who have asked me, you know, totally innocently, do you check in on, on projects or do you assume it's a pass after a month? And I was kind of horrified to hear the question because I think that an agent who is not following up and soliciting answers from the editors is not doing their job and they shouldn't be assuming a pass on, you know, 80, any more than like, you know, 10% maybe of a sublist should be an assumed pass. Maybe. Um, Well, and that's if you have followed up. I mean, I have recently heard from a couple of different people who had this like situation happening, a schmagent situation happening. And they literally, like the agent said, oh, I don't follow up. Yeah, right. What? Right, I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I may not always get answers, but I always am trying to get answers. Exactly. Right, right. I mean, it's due diligence, I think. So, um, but apparently not understood to be so always. Um, Okay. Okay, moving on. Number four, the creator should be notified at some point on who has passed. So to your point, you know, communication and updates on what's going on during the submission. Sometimes creators prefer and sometimes agents style is to give all of the information after the submission is over. Um, so it's not always, you know, the day of or the week of, but, but at some point the creator should know the results of the submission. Mm. And number five, and this is something you go ahead you talk to your agent about too, because like, I feel like some of my clients really want to know immediately yes. when somebody has passed. And so I endeavor to send it, you know, just forward the passes as I get them. But some of my clients, that would completely derail them. Like they would not be able to function if they got rejections every day. Right. So I just hold off and wait and, you know, see if there's anything useful. And some don't want to know at all, ever. <laughs> like they want to know if somebody buys it, full yeah. stop. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I mean, that's just another thing where you need to be talking to your agent about what feels comfortable for you. And you're allowed to change that too. Yes, yes. Yes. I always ask my clients, you know, what do they prefer? I don't have any who don't want to see them like the moment that they're (laughs) happening, but you know, I've always say like, it's your choice. And if you decide in the middle of it, no, this is too hard. We can hold them. And, you know, I can tell you when you check in or at any point. Um, I also think personally, and this is maybe a style thing. I'm still trying to decide which things are style, but is it, I, I sort of think it's my job to accommodate the creator's preferences the majority of the time, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean that I'll be up at 11 o'clock at night on the phone with them because that is sort of outside the bounds of what I think is normal. But if a creator (laughs) prefers to receive, you know, passes by email or prefers for me to text them or prefers some, you know, moderate, um, moderately different, method, then it's my job to sort of, um, adjust to that. It's not really their job to totally adjust to me, but that, I think that, I don't know if that's a style thing or not. No, I would agree with that. I mean, as long as it's, you know, if they remind me sometimes like, Oh, I mean, if I, I don't know if I had a client who wanted me to text them rejections, I don't know if I would remember to do that. It's something, that like- yeah. It's something like more like, for instance, my clients who are at a regular nine to five during the day might want me to text them before, um, you know, during the day to just say, check your email because something has come in. Sometimes I can't do that. You know, I mean, we have to all be, you know, human and understanding with each other because sometimes I'm not at, in a place where I can be texting in the middle of the day. Um, but yeah, I think within, within reason. Um, 
Okay. Number five, I think the creator or the creator should be notified within one to two days max of an offer being made. And all of the material details of the offer should be relayed to the creator. I don't think this is brain science, but some things. One, because the agent wants to get paid, guys. So like they need to tell talk to you about offers. I mean, I always, sometimes people are very anxious and they're like, has anything happened? Like, I promise you will be the first. I know. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. If I get an offer on your book, I'm telling you, baby, because I want you to hopefully accept it, yes. you know, or if we negotiate it. Um, if it's a good offer, I want you to know and I want that money. Yes. I mean, I'm inclined before I'm on submission with something to know, to find out where is my client going to be kind of at all times and how are they going to be reachable? Because if a, an offer comes in, I want to call them immediately. And that's the fun part. You know, <laughs> it's the, the hilarious thing to me is inevitably my author will suddenly go on vacation and be on a cruise in some <laughs> far flung island with no reception. The moment that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> or they're at some work thing and they've shut off all their phone yes, and email. Yes. I, I go berserk. Yes. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number six, the creator makes the ultimate decision about whether or not they want to accept an offer. Again, this should be sort of relatively understood, but I don't make the decisions for my clients about whether or not they accept an offer. It is always up to them, whether it's, you know, wanting it to be, whether it, they think that it's, everything, everything about it is something that they make a decision about. I will give them my recommendations, my, you know, advice and perspective, especially if we're comparing houses. But at the end of the day, thank God, sometimes it's not my decision to make. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes they don't choose the one that I would have chosen, but that's okay. I mean, you know, I figure if I've given them all the information I possibly can, And, you know, if they're choosing between multiple people, if they've had the chance to speak to the editors and they have all the info I can give them Mm -hmm. reasonably, um, then that's their decision. Sometimes it is not the person that is offered the most money. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just they click with one of the editors or they have a gut feeling or something like that. And that's fine. Right. Um, Number seven, the agent negotiates the offer. Also, you know, subtext to this in consultation with, of course, the creator. The creator would would know what the agent is going to ask for. Probably the agent and the creator would be discussing like, okay, we want to ask for more money, but what will you settle for? And if we can't get this, are you still willing to accept the offer? You know, what's kind of like the line in the sand um, as the agent proceeds with negotiations? And I believe the agent and the creator should be in very close contact during this process, this part of the process, so that the creator understands what's going on and the agent can continue to make, you know, to push where they can push and know where, you know, where they're going to be able to, um, to stand strong and where they, when they need to back down. And by the way, this might be a stylistic thing. I don't know. I think it's just common sense, but, um, they should always ask for improvements always like even if they don't think they're going to get them (laughs) even if they don't get them they have to ask because you usually get something better even if it's not a higher advance you usually get some improvements so it seems nuts to me when people just want to accept the first offer like okay let's do it like no 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 wait (laughs) let me go back and talk to these people Yeah. And I don't think editors are usually giving their best and final offer at the beginning of the situation anyways. So yeah. I mean, or even if they are, there's still a way to ask. Yes. I mean, it's, it's my, and I'll say sometimes, Hey, look, I know this is a very generous offer, but it's literally my job to Mm -hmm, ask, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you have any wiggle room here Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I know I've heard some crazy stories where authors have said that the agent says, oh, no, I wouldn't. They're giving their best offer. Like, where are they? (laughs) Anyway, you'll never know if you don't ask. That is part of it. Yes. Yeah. 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 
okay, so last one, number eight, when the contract comes in, the agent or the agency, if they have a dedicated contracts person, negotiates that contract. And that means they do not simply forward the email with the, pu- with the publisher's first draft of the contract. They do a line-by-line close reading of the wording and not only ensure that it reflects the terms negotiated, but that it also matches industry terms, that it has you know, protection worked into the warranties and indemnities clause, and that it has an option you know, clause that is favorable to the client and that it's not restricting the client's output in other genres or other formats if the author is writing other things. So there's there are so many things. And I think literally once in my 10 plus years working in this industry have I gotten a clean contract that had no mistakes. And I and sometimes they're big mistakes and sometimes they are, you know, just things that are not in line with the previous contract that we've negotiated and the things that we have improved with that publisher that are not reflected in that new contract. So this is a I think a yeah, huge I mean, part of our job. Or even Absolutely. I mean, even just like the addresses will be wrong or something. There's always something. I don't think I've ever had something with no problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, And also an addendum to that, I would say, is that not only should they read the contract and whatever, but they should be able to explain any questions Mm -hmm. you have. And Mm -hmm. on the flip side, part of the client's job, I know you don't want to read a contract, but I need you to read it. Mm -hmm. I can't have you sign something you haven't read. And if you don't understand something, I want to explain it to you. Yeah. Um, and if I don't know the exact proper answer or like why something's in there, I will ask and find out exactly what, you know, what that is or whatever. I mean, I want my clients to sign things that they are informed about. But yes, that they understand. You always sign something you understand. Yeah, absolutely. And then all of this, of course, you know, touching on what you said earlier is about open lines of communications. And, you know, you shouldn't have an agent who doesn't respond to your emails or phone calls for, you know, several weeks without some very good reason. That's not normal. And you should be getting responses within, I don't know, like maximum a week from your from your agent, unless something is not pressing. I mean, if it's an email talking about what you guys did over the summer and vacation things, I mean, those things need to be held for when you have the time. But if it's something related to an ongoing, you know, business active project, it needs to be something that is responded to in a timely manner. I'll say for myself, sometimes I'm running around. Oh, sure. And, or somebody emails me in the middle of the night or something like that. And so I might see it, but I just sort of like put a star and say, I'll get to that later. And then I, it slips my mind or something. So I never mind being nudged. I want to be nudged because I want to respond quickly. And I usually do. So if I'm not, mm-hmm. if, if, you know, 72 hours has passed and you haven't heard back from me, please mm-hmm. nudge me. I will never be mad about that Yeah. Um, because I want to make sure that I'm not, <laughs> you know, that I've got a lot going on and it's, you know, I want to make sure that you're not feeling neglected. Right. Right. Um, so, of course, we can't speak for any other agency. And we do know that there's obviously, as we say, different styles, many ways to be an agent, many types of agencies. So let's talk about Andrea Brown. So ABLA is a mid-sized agency. We have 11 agents, an assortment of assistants, bookkeepers, and whatnot. And we're very collaborative. Maybe you can talk a bit about how we work at ABLA. Sure. Um, so Andrea founded the agency, what are we at? Like 35, it's like we passed 35 years a couple years ago, maybe something like that. Yeah. I think it's 1983. I want to say. Okay. Um, so Andrea has been at this for a long time and we are, we were at one point exclusively focused or not focused, but, uh, located on the West coast. Now you're of course in New York and we have Jennifer Matson in Chicago Um, but the rest of us are in California and we all work out of our own homes. So we have that luxury to have, you know, kind of our, our at home setups and we all work very independently on our own client lists. So nobody else, you know, manages my client's work or, you know, develops my client's career strategy and develops the manuscripts with me. Uh, however, we do, so frequently share things among the agency by email. I mean, I don't know, we, we are trading 
between a dozen and a hundred emails a day between the agency about all sorts of different things, whether it is, Hey, could I get your, you know, could I get a set of second eyes on this manuscript or this pitch or the sublist or this contract language or marketing plan or all sorts of manner of different things um, are going back and forth between the agency via email. And then we have monthly um, video chats where we all, I feel like we look like um, we're like on the Brady Bunch screen, <laughs> you know, like all the little faces and um, talk about larger agency policy and um, practices that way and just sort of stay in touch in a more formal way. Um, we do sometimes have informal um, video chats and then of course, we're also um, chatting on like um, Slack and we're chatting on text and we're calling each other. I mean, I don't know. There's not a day that goes by where I'm not in touch with every single member of the agency. Um, I would say maybe there's some days where I'm not in touch with every single member of the agency, but no day that I'm not in touch with at least a handful of people from the agency. <laughs> pretty much everyone. It's pretty much everyone. I yeah, I mean, you're yeah. right. There are days, especially when people are on vacation, of course, but there are also days where people have their nose to the, you know, grindstone with a manuscript and they're less on online, but um it's pretty pretty constant. And people, I mean, we are a no from one is a no from all agencies. People ask all the time if we really truly share manuscripts amongst each other. And I would say Yes. Yeah. I mean, I can think of like a handful of clients who one of you guys represents. And then I have like four I can think of offhand who came to me from one of you guys. Two of them came from you recently. Thank you. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we're routing things every week. It's, um, we, we want, like, if it's not for us, we still want the person possibly to be under our umbrella. And I mean, we want all the good stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think something's promising. Yeah. And maybe it isn't, maybe I don't have time or whatever, right. but I want somebody else to get it. Right. Now, will you help me, Kelly, answer some listener questions? Sure. I'm an author illustrator working on getting materials ready for picture book submission to agents. Surfing the web, I see suggestions on what to submit for those who are picture book writers, but not illustrators. And for those who are picture book illustrators, but not writers, what if you're a PB author illustrator? What is an agent looking to receive ideally? Well, at the end of the day, everybody should look at the specific agency's website for their instructions, because I don't know what all of the other agencies ask for, but I know our agency, and this is on our website, asks for um, the full dummy in PDF format attached to the email. Um, but the dummy should also have within it two to three f like finished color samples. Um, and then the creator should also include a link to their online portfolio. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately I need to see some art. I want to see your portfolio. I want to make sure you're, you have a well-rounded portfolio. Um, I want to know that you've got a dummy of that book. And if you're an author in particular, I might ask for some more manuscripts too. Like if I like the first one afterwards, yeah. I will, afterwards. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're opening a conversation. I might say, what else do you have? Right. Yeah. I feel like picture book, authors and illustrators should have a couple of things on the ready for that question. They shouldn't send them all at once, but they should know that agents often want to see more than one thing when they're looking at picture books. It's interesting. I had somebody ask me recently and the way they phrased it was so kind of upsetting. Actually, they said, I understand that a picture book author is only really half a client. Mm. What? And I was like, no, what? <laughs> what? And basically they were saying there's this myth, I think, that, no, I know. I know there's a myth because people ask me about it, that all, agents never want picture book writers only. Oh, picture but that, book uh, First of all, I don't think it's no. true, right? You represent picture book authors. Yes. I represent picture book authors. And also that way of saying it, half a client, like, no, <laughs> God. <laughs> 
Yeah, no. I love you, poor right. little person who said that. No. No, 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 no. I, I mean, yes, I rep lots of picture book authors. And in fact, I just took on two new, you know, debut picture book writers a few months ago. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know why that exists out there, but I also feel like it exists on the illustrator side too. I feel like there is a message being given to illustrators that they shouldn't just pitch their portfolios as, as, um, them wanting to illustrate other people's work, but that they must learn to write and they must be an author illustrator and that agents won't be, won't be interested unless they are author illustrators with dummies. And that is also a strange rumor. I don't know. I don't understand that. Well, I mean, I think as far as the writer part goes, I guess maybe it's because picture books pay less. It was just text only. So maybe advances are small. So maybe some people are really like most of my authors who write picture books also write middle grade or something else, pick chapter books or something. Um, but that's just happenstance. I think as far as um, illustrators, I do think we hear a lot of editors say, oh, I'm really looking for great author illustrators. But the fact is that some people are just really amazing at drawing yeah. and they're not good at writing no, I, or they're not good at writing yet. Or, you know, they're getting, they're working. That's an emerging skill. Yes. And there's still a lot of picture book texts that are being purchased that need illustrators. So there's plenty of work to be had on both sides of that. Totally. So the next question kind of is an offshoot of that. Um, uh, they ask, is it true that a lot of agents don't want to rep picture book writers who are not also illustrators? Meh, I think we kind of busted that. But do you feel picture book writers should also sm consider submitting to editors on their own if they aren't finding any agent luck? I don't. If the picture book writer ultimately wants to work with a literary agent. the What I've had happen is that Sometimes I receive a submission from a writer and I like it. And then in talking to the writer, I find out that it's been like all over town and that, you know, basically they've hit all of the publishers that I would have gone to probably previous to the edit that I would have done with them. And maybe they haven't even sent it to the right editors. So at that point, you know, I, I don't feel like I can do anything sometimes, you know, like if there's only like three more places to try, I don't feel like I have much room to maneuver. And so if you want to work with a literary agent, I really think you should exhaust that before going directly to publishing houses. Um, if you don't want to work with an agent, ultimately, then by all means, there are still houses who accept unsolicited submissions. So I sort of think it's about your long-term goal. Next question. As a writer, the nuts and bolts of the agent side of the querying process is fairly mysterious. Would you mind sharing some of your process? Like, how do you choose what to respond to first? Is it purely chronological or some manuscripts sorted into a maybe pile for later? I'm so interested to hear what you say. I'll tell. So what I do is I like 99% of the time I'm working chronologically because I'm trying to keep up with like our, um, our stated timelines for getting back to people. Um, so I'm, I'm like literally sorting my inbox or my query inbox by date oldest first. And I'm working through that way. My assistant sometimes, because she's really good at reading YA, sometimes she pulls the YA pitches out and reads them ahead of me. And then she'll notify me if she thinks there's something in there that I would like and would want to request. And I'll look at that sometimes like out of order. Um, but then once I request something based on the first 10 pages, or if I, you know, find a picture book text and want to see something else and request other manuscripts, then the like, the real consideration, if you will, um, I have to find separate time for that. So I don't do that at the same time that I'm looking at the first round of submission um, queries, I have to find like an evening or a weekend or some other quiet time during the middle of the week, which is so hard, but to sit down and like read those requested manuscripts and like really evaluate the work and decide if I, you know, want to move forward and have a phone call and things like that. What do you do? Uh, same pretty much. I do it. I look at everything in chronological order Unless there's some pressing sure. reason why it isn't, like somebody has, uh, I don't know, 
maybe a good friend at a publisher has recommended this person or, or yes, yes. So there's some other reason why it would jump ahead, yeah. but mostly it's chronological order. If there's something that I'm on the fence about or that I am just not sure, then I sort of do put it in a maybe pile and look at it more closely later. Mm-hmm. For the most part, the no's are in chronological order and the, then there's the like maybes and yeses, which might be a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. So are there any big querying do's and don'ts for you? Um, I, I mean, I could, I, I don't, I not like, not huge. I think, I mean, I really prefer it when query letters are personalized. I, you know, I'm, I'm bored when I get a query that doesn't even have my name on it. Doesn't have any reason that they are actually selecting me. They, you know, it's just, it feels very like a mass email. I just, I don't like to see, get something that I feel like is a mass email. Uh, if I've seen the creator's work before, I want the query letter to acknowledge that because I can usually tell. Uh, sometimes I can remember seeing that person's work before. And I sort of feel like when they don't acknowledge that, it's like they're hiding it and they're trying to be like a new query. And I don't know if that's just all in my head, but I just like them to be honest about the fact that they've sent stuff to me before. Um I don't like it when query letters make claims about what the book will do or how it's the only book to do something or, you know, how it's going to teach su- such and such. This is going to be more popular than the Bible. Yes. Kelly. Right. Right. Or like <laughs> no one has ever thought to put these two things together before, you know, those kinds of great claims don't sit well with me. And then I don't like it when writers don't follow directions and like submit to me one pro- more than one project at a time. Um, but that's that's not normal. We got a specific request from a listener to talk more about the Big Sur Children's Writers Workshop. Uh, this is a retreat that our agency puts together every year. Uh, the next one is in December, which is the original Big Sur Workshop in Big Sur, California. And in spring, we're headed to the East Coast for another edition of Big Sur Cape Cod. And registration just opened for December, and it's filling up fast. So I wanted to um, talk about that. Of course, I will have all the info on how to register in the show notes. But Callie, can you give us the basics of how the workshops work? Sure. It's, um, it's a small format workshop. Uh, Each writer is partnered with two faculty for the weekend and each writer meets with that faculty member and three to four other writers. And if I were the first faculty member that writer had, we would meet on the first evening and all of the writers in my group would workshop the first five to 10 pages of their manuscript or picture book and receive on the spot critique. Um, And then what makes it really unique is that you go away that night, you have time to be revising. And the next morning you might, that writer might have you for their next critique and they could either critique the same pages, which maybe they've revised that previous evening, or maybe it's the next chapter, or maybe it's a new picture book and then when they go away from your group, they have more time to revise. And then they come back to my group. And by then, hopefully, they have been able to actually apply the feedback they've gotten. And this is what I think is so special, is that there are so many different workshops that are formatted in a way where you receive feedback and you go away. And then you never know if what you're doing is actually applying it in a way that is productive and positive for the manuscript. And so you can get feedback then on those changes and hear from your group and hear from your faculty leader, whether or not what you've done is working, whether or not it still needs to be tweaked, you know, and get kind of a a second round of feedback. I I feel like we say it and it sounds cheesy, but I think we have seen miracles happen. <laughs> like I've seen picture books on Friday that I thought, oh man, this is never going to work. And then by Sunday, it's shocking the changes that have been wrought. Yeah. I, I have had the same experience and I represent a client who did that very thing. She brought a manuscript and it was written in a certain style and direction. And in speaking with her about what she was actually trying to accomplish with the story, 
she ended up coming back with a totally different version. I mean, it was, it was not the same story, but it was still about the same things. And we ended up selling that. I ended up taking her on as a client and we sold that a few months later. So yeah, it, it's really fantastic because I think that, that that second level, that second round of getting feedback and seeing if what you've done is working is so valuable. I will say, I mean, I don't think if you're going to Big Sur and there are a lot of awesome agents, obviously we're biased, but whatever. Um, but there's a lot of awesome editors there too. But if you're going there thinking, I'm going to get a contract, you know, I'm going to sell my book right now, then that's probably not a good reason to go there. Correct. It's more like, I want to really focus on craft. I want to get critiques that are like going to make my writing stronger. Yeah. I want to fix my book sometimes. Yeah. We, I mean, we have writers there who are already represented by other agents and they come there for the experience of the workshop. So it's not... It's it's not designed for us to you know be on the hunt for authors. That happens, and it's exciting when it happens, but it's not designed in that way. I will also say it's in an incredibly beautiful place, um, and which is quite inspiring, I think. And there's no like there's no TVs, there's no radios, there's no internet. Sometimes, unfortunately. Um, but all of that means that you really like. What do you have to do? You have to revise. Or look at trees. Yes, right. It's so, and it's so healthy like, to like disconnect in that way, especially when you're trying to be creative. I think it, I think it really all helps. Yeah, it makes my brain. It's like reinvigorating mm-hmm. for me, and I'm not even a writer, so I love mm-hmm. doing that. Um, also, I will say that we had a um, a tremendous friend of the of the workshops, Jen Elfman, passed away this year. And um, in her honor, we've got a scholarship, which I will link to, but it's in the hopes that maybe somebody who can't afford to go to the, um, to the workshop will be able to get the scholarship because I think it um, is such an extraordinary place and so helpful to so many people. And Jen would have loved to know that she was helping people get to experience that. Yeah. Okay. So now it is time for some self-promotion corner. This is your opportunity to tell us about a couple of books you're most excited about that are either brand new or about to come out. Knowing that this is going to air around September of 2018, what are you excited about, Kelly? Um, Well, one of my illustrators, Joy Ng, has been illustrating um, picture books for a long time, and she took on this incredible nonfiction project that is an adaptation of the Atlas Obscura um, adult nonfiction book that came out, I believe, last year, possibly the year before. I know it's had, I think it's had two Christmases. And so it's a, it's a, um, a kid's book version. It's like, basically all the coolest places in the world that the most adventurous kid could go to. And she's illustrated these lush vignettes and the scenes are beautiful. Um, It's going to be a great Christmas buy for any kids who are interested in international travel or like cool historical places and all sorts of just like, yeah, basically just like rad things. Um, And that's coming out either later this month or next month um, with Workmen. So I will have a link to it. Any other things you need to promote? I am always excited to promote all of my books, but um, I'm also really excited about a set of books that my client Jessica Young published a few months ago called Play This Book and Pet This Book that are like interactive books without any novelty components, like no move, no moving parts, but the child is meant to really interact with the books. Um, these books came to be when Jess and I were talking about kind of the cost prohibitive nature of interactive books. And I was telling her about how my kids and I read the certain Dr. Seuss book that, although I don't think it was written by Dr. Seuss, it's the, um, hand, hand, fingers, thumb. And I think it's just in the, yeah. And so when we read it, we beat our thumbs on the page 
to beat the drums. And I said, you know, I don't know if all parents do this, but this is how we read the book. And it just feels like it's such a natural part of this reading experience. But I I would love to see books that encourage the kids to like pat on the pages or like, you know, kind of like press here, but like doing different things. And so she came up with these brilliant ideas where, you know, you open the spread of play this book and there's a big drum and you're meant to drum on the book. And then there's a big keyboard and you're, you're meant to tink, tink, tunk, tunk the keys and you strum the guitar and you close the pages of the book to make the cymbals crash. And they're super fun and just ingenious. Awesome. So now, as you probably know, hopefully, I always ask every guest on the program one final question, which is, what are you obsessed with right now? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. So while you're thinking about your obsession, I will tell you mine. Mine is actually kind of semi-bookers this time. So when I was in New Orleans for ALA early this summer, I had one of the best meals of my entire life at um, Alan Shaya's sort of Israeli Southern Fusion restaurant. And I just bought the cookbook, appropriately named Shaya. I love this cookbook so hard. First of all, it's arranged not by course or ingredient, but kind of as a journey through the chef's life, the various influences that shaped him along the way. And every recipe looks completely, completely delicious. Let me tell you, this dude's hummus is the best thing ever. This dude's baba ganoush is a revelation. (laughs) Somehow he makes roasted cauliflower into like a mind-bendingly sublime food experience. And I'm personally, I am from an old Louisiana family, so I'm fascinated to try his takes on things like red beans and rice and that kind of thing. So my plan at the moment is to cook everything in this cookbook, Julie and Julia style. Maybe they will make a movie of me. Maybe I'll start a blog. I don't know. This is my new life now. It's just making books out of the Shia, just making food out of the Shia cookbook. Um, Yum. So Kelly, what are you obsessed with? Well, I'm just making working my way out of an obsession that occupied my whole summer, but I decided to give my children the experience of growing caterpillars. And I did this by a friend of mine. Yeah, well, I'll, let me. Silkworms? <laughs> no. A friend okay. of mine told me that they just, you know, every summer just go and buy a milkweed plant. You put them in your yard and then the like eggs appear on your milkweed and then they turn into butterflies and then you've got monarch or they turn into caterpillars and they they're monarch butterflies and it's amazing well it it is not that simple (laughs) there are a million (laughs) things that can go wrong as you raise caterpillars including things like the black death they literally call it where they the caterpillars like are growing and they look they're looking very healthy and vibrant yellow and they're so pretty And then all of a sudden they are like hanging and they have folded in half and they are emaciated and melting goo. And (laughs) it turned into (laughs) like, not only did I have to bring my caterpillars inside, but I had quarantined certain caterpillars because the black death is contagious. And I had a three foot by three foot like plastic cage for them and Finally, when they all cocooned successfully and spiders and ants didn't eat them because that did happen to the first round, the timing, I finally looked it up and I was so happy they turned into cocoons and I was going to be gone for the like the reveal, the like, you know, they're going to be born. They're going to like be born into their beautiful selves as caterpillar or I mean as butterflies and I was going to be in Minnesota. And so I had to... I had to plead with my neighbor that she would take my three by three foot butterfly enclosure and babysit my caterpillars while I was gone. And it was a, it was an obsession, <laughs> but I did. Did she put like a nanny camera in there so you could see the butterfly? <laughs> she did send me pictures and we did successfully hatch like, I don't know, a dozen butterflies this summer, but it was a thing. It was, it was no joke. I remember doing silkworms when I was a kid. Are they easier? And you just like fill. Yeah, they're really easy. You just fill a shoebox with um, mulberry leaves. They love them. Um, and none of them did anything weird or died or anything. But then you just get a moth, which is oh yeah, that's not as fun. These are or it's some kind of like dumb butterfly. It's not like 
a really rad butterfly. Monarchs are so beautiful. I mean, I will say when they did hatch and they or come out of their cocoon, they were so striking. And it's incredible that they can fit in these teeny tiny little cocoons. I mean, science is magic. It is it is really quite something how that whole process works. It's sort of sci-fi. I did feel like I was watching a science fiction movie. <laughs> So it's safe to say that you were looking for a picture book about the very deadly caterpillar. <laughs> They're very prone to, I don't know, death, I guess. They, <laughs> the very sick caterpillar. They are caterpillar. Also just not smart. They, you know, their whole life revolves around the milkweed plant and they have no reason to leave. They, sh- they can't actually even eat anything else other than milkweed. And yet they like go on walkabouts and like, in the middle of the sidewalk, I find them. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, they're just, they're not, there's a reason we have a pollinator problem, I think. I uh, I have like a hundred milkweed plants in my house and I do see them oh, quite really? often. But I must say I've never tried to bring them inside or anything <laughs> like that. So. Well, that's awesome that you're doing your part. Um, okay, Kelly, we could talk about this all night, but we will not. So um, thank you again so much for joining me. You're welcome. I'm glad to have been a part. Thanks so much for listening to the Literati cast. And thanks again to my guest, Kelly Sonak. I will have links to all the books we talked about, to the Big Sur workshop, and how to query Kelly all up in the show notes. That is on my website, jenniferloughran.com, or you can just follow all the links via Twitter. Remember that the Literati Cast has a Patreon. Chip in a buck and help me defray the cost of putting this together. Plus, you just might win books. That's at patreon.com slash literaticat. And if you like the show, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. More reviews help people find us. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.